From the Earth to the Moon, Jules Verne, Chapter 22, The New Citizen of the United States. That same day, all America heard of the affair of Captain Nichol and President Barbicane, as well as its singular denouement. From that day forth, Michel Ardan had not one moment's rest. Deputations from all corners of the Union harassed him without cessation or intermission. He was compelled to receive them all, whether he would or no. How many hands he shook! How many people he was hail-fellow-well met with! It's impossible to guess. Such a triumphal result would have intoxicated any other man, but he managed to keep himself in a state of delightful semi-tipsiness. Among the deputations of all kinds which assailed him, that of the lunatics were careful not to forget what they owed to the future conqueror of the moon. One day, certain of these poor people, so numerous in America, came to call upon him and requested permission to return with him to their native country. Singular hallucination, he said to Barbicane, after having dismissed the deputation with promises to convey numbers of messages to friends in the moon. Do you believe in the influence of the moon upon distempers? Scarcely. No more do I, despite some remarkable recorded facts of history. For instance, during an epidemic in 1693, a large number of persons died at the very moment of an eclipse. The celebrated Bacon always fainted during an eclipse. Charles VI relapsed six times into madness during the year 1399, sometimes during the new, sometimes during the full moon. Gall observed that insane persons underwent an accession of their disorder twice in every month, at the epochs of new and full moon. In fact, numerous observations made upon fevers, somnambulisms, and other human maladies seem to prove that the moon does exercise some mysterious influence upon man. But the how and the wherefore? asked Barbicane. Well, I can only give you the answer which Arago borrowed from Plutarch which is 19 centuries old. Perhaps the stories are not true. In the height of his triumph, Michel Ardan had to encounter all the annoyances incidental to a man of celebrity. Managers of entertainments wanted to exhibit him. Barnum offered him a million dollars to make a tour of the United States in his show. As for his photographs, they were sold of all size, and his portrait taken in every imaginable posture. More than half a million copies were disposed of in an incredibly short space of time. But it was not only the men who paid him homage, but the women as well. He might have married well a hundred times over, if he'd been willing to settle in life. The old maids, in particular, of forty years and upward, and dry in proportion, devoured his photographs day and night. They would have married him by hundreds if he had imposed upon them the condition of accompanying him into space. He had, however, no intention of transplanting a race of Franco-Americans upon the surface of the moon. He therefore declined all offers. As soon as he could withdraw from these somewhat embarrassing demonstrations, he went accompanied by his friends to pay a visit to the Columbiad. He was highly gratified by his inspection, and made the descent to the bottom of the tube of this gigantic machine, which was presently to launch him to the regions of the moon. It's necessary here to mention a proposal of J.T. Maston's. 
When the secretary of the gun club found that Barbicane and Nicol accepted the proposal of Michel Ardan, he determined to join them and make one of a smug party of four. So one day he determined to be admitted as one of the travelers. Barbicane, pained at having to refuse him, gave him clearly to understand that the projectile could not possibly contain so many passengers. Maston, in despair, went in search of Michel Ardan, who counseled him to resign himself to the situation, adding one or two arguments ad hominem. "'You see, old fellow,' he said, "'you must not take what I say in bad part. But really, between ourselves, you're in too incomplete a condition to appear in the moon.' "'Incomplete?' shrieked the valiant invalid. "'Yes, my dear fellow.' Imagine our meeting some of the inhabitants up there. Would you like to give them such a melancholy notion of what goes on down here? To teach them what war is? To inform them that we employ our time chiefly in devouring each other, in smashing arms and legs, and that too on a globe which is capable of supporting a hundred billions of inhabitants, and which actually does contain nearly two hundred millions. Why, my worthy friend, we should have to turn you out of doors." But still, if you arrive there in pieces, you'll be as incomplete as I am. Unquestionably, replied Michel Ardan, but we shall not. In fact, a preparatory experiment tried on the 18th of October had yielded the best results and caused the most well-grounded hopes of success. Barbicane, desirous of obtaining some notion of the effect of the shock at the moment of the projectile's departure, had procured a 38-inch mortar from the arsenal of Pensacola. He had this placed on the bank of Hillsborough Roads in order that the shell might fall back into the sea and the shock be thereby destroyed. His object was to ascertain the extent of the shock of departure and not that of the return. A hollow projectile had been prepared for this curious experiment. A thick padding fastened upon a kind of elastic network made of the best steel lined the inside of the walls. It was a veritable nest, most carefully wadded. "'What a pity I can't find room in there,' said J.T. Maston, regretting that his height did not allow of his trying the adventure. Within this shell were shut up a large cat and a squirrel belonging to J.T. Maston, and of which he was particularly fond. They were desirous, however, of ascertaining how this little animal, least of all others subject to giddiness, would endure this experimental voyage. The mortar was charged with 160 pounds of powder and the shell placed in the chamber. On being fired, the projectile rose with great velocity, described a majestic parabola, attained a height of about a thousand feet, and with a graceful curve descended in the midst of the vessels that lay there at anchor. Without a moment's loss of time, a small boat put off in the direction of its fall, some divers plunged into the water and attached ropes to the handles of the shell, which was quickly dragged on board. Five minutes did not elapse between the moment of enclosing the animals and that of unscrewing the cover lid of their prison. Ardan, Barbicane, Maston, and Nicol were present on board the boat and assisted at the operation with an interest which may readily be comprehended. Hardly had the shell been opened when the cat leaped out, slightly bruised but full of life, and exhibiting no signs whatever of having made an aerial expedition. No trace, however, of the squirrel could be discovered. 
The truth at last became apparent. The cat had eaten its fellow traveler. J.T. Maston grieved much for the loss of his poor squirrel and proposed to add its case to that of other martyrs to science. After this experiment, all hesitation, all fear disappeared. Besides, Barbicane's plans would ensure greater perfection for his projectile and go far to annihilate altogether the effects of the shock. Nothing now remained but to go. Two days later, Michel Ardan received a message from the President of the United States, an honor of which he showed himself especially sensible. After the example of his illustrious fellow countryman, the Marquis de Lafayette, the government had decreed to him the title of Citizen of the United States of America. Chapter 23. The Projectile Vehicle on the completion of the Columbiad, the public interest centered in the projectile itself, the vehicle which was destined to carry the three hardy adventurers into space. The new plans had been sent to Bredwell and Company of Albany with the request for their speedy execution. The projectile was consequently cast on the 2nd of November and immediately forwarded by the Eastern Railway to Stones Hill, which it reached without accident on the 10th of that month, where Michel Ardan... Barbicane and Nickel were waiting impatiently for it. The projectile had now to be filled to the depth of three feet with a bed of water, intended to support a watertight wooden disc, which worked easily within the walls of the projectile. It was upon this kind of raft that the travelers were to take their place. This body of water was divided by horizontal partitions, which the shock of the departure would have to break in succession. Then each sheet of the water, from the lowest to the highest, running off into escape tubes toward the top of the projectile, constitute a kind of spring, and the wooden disc, supplied with extremely powerful plugs, could not strike the lowest plate except after breaking successively the different partitions. Undoubtedly, the travelers would still have to encounter a violent recoil after the complete escapement of the water, but the first shock would be almost entirely destroyed by this powerful spring. The upper parts of the walls were lined with a thick padding of leather, fastened upon springs of the best steel, behind which the escape tubes were completely concealed. Thus, all imaginable precautions had been taken for averting the first shock. And if they did get crushed, they must, as Michel Ardan said, be made of very bad materials. The entrance into this metallic tower was by a narrow aperture contrived in the wall of the cone. This was hermetically closed by a plate of aluminum, fastened internally by powerful screw pressure. The travelers could therefore quit their prison at pleasure as soon as they should reach the moon. Light and view were given by means of four thick lenticular glass scuttles, two pierced in the circular wall itself, the third in the bottom, the fourth in the top. These scuttles then were protected against the shock of departure by plates let into solid grooves, which could easily be opened outward by unscrewing them from the inside. Reservoirs firmly fixed contained water and the necessary provisions, and fire and light were procurable by means of gas contained in a special reservoir under a pressure of several atmospheres. They had only to turn a tap and for six hours the gas would light and warm this comfortable vehicle. There now remained only the question of air. 
for allowing for the consumption of air by Barbicane, his two companions, and two dogs, which he proposed to take with him, it was necessary to renew the air of the projectile. Now air consists principally of 21 parts of oxygen and 79 of nitrogen. The lungs absorb the oxygen, which is indispensable for the support of life, and reject the nitrogen. The air expired loses nearly 5% of the former and contains nearly an equal volume of carbonic acid produced by the combustion of the elements of the blood. In an airtight enclosure, after a certain time, all the oxygen of the air will be replaced by the carbonic acid, a gas fatal to life. There are two things to be done then. First, to replace the absorbed oxygen. Secondly, to destroy the expired carbonic acid. Both easy enough to do by means of chlorate of potassium and caustic potash. The former is a salt which appears under the form of white crystals, which raised to a temperature of 400 degrees, it is transformed into chlorure of potassium, and the oxygen which it contains is entirely liberated. Now, 28 pounds of chlorate of potassium produces 7 pounds of oxygen, or 2,400 liters the quantity necessary for the travelers during 24 hours. Caustic potash has a great affinity for carbonic acid, and it's sufficient to shake it in order for it to seize upon the acid and form bicarbonate of potassium. By these two means, they would be enabled to restore to the vitiated air its life-supporting properties. It's necessary, however, to add that the experiments had hitherto been made in Anamavili, Whatever its scientific accuracy was, they were at present ignorant how it would answer with human beings. The honor of putting it to the proof was energetically claimed by J.T. Maston. Since I'm not to go, said the brave artillerist, I may at least live for a week in the projectile. It would have been hard to refuse him, so they consented to his wish. A sufficient quantity of chlorate of potassium and of caustic potash was placed at his disposal, together with provisions for eight days, and having shaken hands with his friends, on the 12th of November, at 6 o'clock a.m., after strictly informing them not to open his prison before the 20th, at 6 o'clock p.m., he slid down the projectile, the plate of which was at once hermetically sealed. What did he do with himself during that week? They could get no information. The thickness of the walls of the projectile prevented any sound reaching from the inside to the outside. On the 20th of November, at 6 p.m. exactly, the plate was opened. The friends of J.T. Maston had been all along in a state of much anxiety, but they were promptly reassured on hearing a jolly voice shouting a boisterous hurrah. Presently, afterward, the secretary of the gun club appeared at the top of the cone in a triumphant attitude. He had grown fat. Chapter 24. The Telescope of the Rocky Mountains. On the 20th of October in the preceding year, after the close of the subscription, the president of the gun club had credited the observatory of Cambridge with the necessary sums for the construction of a gigantic optical instrument. This instrument was designed for the purpose of rendering visible on the surface of the moon any object exceeding nine feet in diameter. At the period when the gun club essayed their great experiment, such instruments had reached a high degree of perfection 
and produced some magnificent results. Two telescopes in particular at this time were possessed of remarkable power and of gigantic dimensions. The first, constructed by Herschel, was 36 feet in length and had an object glass of 4 feet 6 inches. It possessed a magnifying power of 6,000. The second was raised in Ireland at Parsonstown Park and belongs to Lord Rossi. The length of this tube is 48 feet and the diameter of its object glass 6 feet. It magnifies 6,400 times and required an immense erection of brickwork and masonry for the purpose of working it, its weight being 12 and a half tons. Still, despite these colossal dimensions, the actual enlargement scarcely exceeded 6,000 times in round numbers. Consequently, the moon was brought within no nearer an apparent distance than 39 miles. The objects of less than 60 feet in diameter, unless they were of very considerable length, were still imperceptible. In the present case, dealing with a projectile 9 feet in diameter and 15 feet long, it became necessary to bring the moon within an apparent distance of 5 miles at most, and for that purpose to establish a magnifying power of 48,000 times. Such was the question proposed to the Observatory of Cambridge. There was no lack of funds. The difficulty was purely one of construction. After considerable discussion as to the best form and principle of the proposed instrument, the work was finally commenced. According to the calculations of the Observatory of Cambridge, the tube of the new reflector would require to be 280 feet in length, and the object glass 16 feet in diameter. Colossal as these dimensions may appear, they were diminutive in comparison with the 10,000-foot telescope proposed by the astronomer Hook only a few years ago. Regarding the choice of locality, the matter was promptly determined. The object was to select some lofty mountain, and there aren't many of these in the United States. In fact, there are but two chains of moderate elevation, between which runs the magnificent Mississippi, the King of Rivers, as these Republican Yankees delight to call it. Eastwards rise the Appalachians, the very highest point of which, in New Hampshire, does not exceed the very moderate altitude of 5,600 feet. On the west, however, rise the Rocky Mountains, that immense range which, commencing at the Straits of Magellan, follows the western coast of southern America under the name of the Andes, or the Cordilleras, until it crosses the Isthmus of Panama and runs up the whole of North America to the very borders of the Polar Sea. The highest elevation of this range still does not exceed 10,700 feet. With this elevation, nevertheless, the gun club were compelled to be content, inasmuch as they had determined that both Telescope and Columbiad should be erected within the limits of the Union. All the necessary apparatus was consequently sent on to the summit of Long's Peak in the territory of Missouri. Neither pen nor language can describe the difficulties of all kinds which the American engineers had to surmount, of the prodigies of daring and skill which they accomplished. They had to raise enormous stones, massive pieces of wrought iron, heavy corner clamps and huge portions of cylinder, with an object glass weighing nearly 30,000 pounds, above the line of perpetual snow for more than 10,000 feet in height after crossing desert prairies, impenetrable forests, 
fearful rapids, far from all centers of population, and in the midst of savage regions in which every detail of life becomes an almost insoluble problem. And yet, notwithstanding these innumerable obstacles, American genius triumphed. In less than a year after the commencement of the works, toward the close of September, the gigantic reflector rose into the air to a height of 280 feet. It was raised by means of an enormous iron crane, an ingenious mechanism allowed it to be easily worked toward all the points of the heavens and to follow the stars from the one horizon to the other during their journey through the heavens. It had cost $400,000. The first time it was directed toward the moon, the observers evinced both curiosity and anxiety. What were they about to discover in the field of this telescope, which magnified objects 48,000 times? Would they perceive peoples, herds of lunar animals, towns, lakes, seas? No, there was nothing which science had not already discovered, and on all the points of the disk, the volcanic nature of the moon became determinable with the utmost precision. But the telescope of the Rocky Mountains, before doing its duty to the gun club, rendered immense services to astronomy. Thanks to its penetrative power, the depths of the heavens were sounded to the utmost extent. The apparent diameter of a great number of stars was accurately measured, and Mr. Clark of the Cambridge staff resolved the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which the reflector of Lord Rossi had never been able to decompose.